Warning, Burning Bridges with Uncle Sam contains mature subject matter. This is Burning Bridges with Uncle Sam, and I want you to dance around the Maypole with me. It's spring, y'all. It's a season of renewal. Has that ever felt more true than this year? I hesitate to say this lest I jinx us to another deadly virus or another game show host president, but it feels like a new day. Like maybe the worst is behind us, like Jason and Freddie and Chucky are really dead this time. It's nice. It's nice to be putting on shades because the light at the end of the tunnel is so bright. It really boggles the mind to think about how we've learned to live this past year or the crazy shit we were doing in those early days. I am not ashamed to say I wiped down my groceries. I wiped down anything or anyone that came into my home. And that wasn't even the worst of it. Tell you the truth, and there's just no way in hell to seem cool about any of this, so I'll just say it. I was a fucking wreck when this thing started. I mean, it could have been worse. I could have become famous throwing myself on the ground at a Costco and showing the world what a fucking moron I am. But I didn't do that. Well, I didn't do that during the pandemic. It's entirely possible it happened before then. See, I'm a lifelong asthmatic who smokes cigarettes like a goddamn genius for two decades. And yeah, I'm still being super smart by continuing to put weed smoke in my lungs every day. So when I heard there was this virus that wrecked weak lungs, my paranoia and my outsized ego convinced me this was a SAM-seeking missile designed specifically to kill me. I had only lived in L.A. a few months, and I suddenly felt very alone. I didn't want to die. I didn't want to die in a strange and unfamiliar place, far from home, without hugging my family again. I've been around death a little, not the way medical professionals or a soldier has, but I've been with family members as they lay dying. I know it's a fact of life. But until last spring, I don't think I really knew that I was going to die. I think, I think I thought deep down that I was special and I would somehow find a way to get around it. I don't know, maybe I'd slip the Mater D a 20 or something. I know that doesn't make any sense given my self-destructive habits. I mean, the sad truth is I didn't expect to live past 30. But the actual part about dying, I don't know. It just never seemed real for me. And then suddenly, death was a very real possibility. And it was everywhere around me. And everything I had yet to do came into focus and, oh, shit. When the fear combined with my day job of battling the forces of Trumpism and some really ill-timed chainsaw work was being done right outside my home, I was like a meth-addicted hummingbird, a blur of anxious energy flying to the trailer home peephole every two seconds to investigate the latest phantom noise outside. So I asked an acquaintance I knew out here to recommend a shrink. I'm a big believer in both therapy and better living through modern chemistry, so I figured it was probably time to bite the bullet and get on a low dose of Mother's Little Helper or something that would take the edge off and help me chill the fuck out a little bit. So I did that thing Prince sang about and Let's Go Crazy. I called up that shrink in Beverly Hills. You know, Dr. Everything Will Be All Right. And I asked him how much mind I have left. Okay, <laughs> I didn't do that second part because I'm not as cool as Prince was, but you know, who the fuck is? So we did a Zoom session, and I poured out all my fears and tears and anxieties, and in return, I got a prescription. I had no idea a person could have a bad trip on a goddamn anti-anxiety medication. But that sure as hell seems to be what happened. A week of extreme restlessness, hyperventilating, and anxiety turned from 5 to 11, made worse by the uncertainty of the early days of the virus, and the lack of options for places to go, things to do to distract myself. I must have eaten acid a hundred times when I was younger, but a freaking antidepressant is my worst trip. After five or six days of getting stiff-armed or unconcerned don't-worry-about-it emails from that son-of-a-bitch shrink, my worry level was at a high I didn't know existed, and I felt like my physical health was in danger. Now look, this is embarrassing to talk about, but this is how it went down. 
So one day, when I didn't think I could take it anymore, I asked a friend of mine to drive me to the urgent care center at Cedar sinai On the way there, I was 100% convinced I was having a stroke. Nope. After lots and lots of tests and despite repeated and dramatic drops in my blood pressure, the very kind nurses and doctor couldn't find anything wrong with me. For lots and lots of reasons, I was shocked. So she sent me home with instructions to get off the antidepressants, a script for a small amount of Xanax, and instructions to stick to weed and junk food. I might have added that last part, but I could tell the doctor was thinking it. When I got back to the apartment, I felt that incongruous combination of relief and anxiety. I was relieved I didn't have diabetes or was about to have a heart attack or that I hadn't had a stroke. I still didn't know what the fuck was wrong with me. And that's when my buddy Jack came through. Jack is the filmmaker who made active measures with another friend of mine, Marley. It's the fantastic documentary about the Russian attacks on our democracy in 2016. If you haven't seen it, you should check it out. He was also my new friend in L.A. shortly before and during the days that I was coming apart. Jack moved out here about six months before I did, and we had become buddies while spending a weekday in his screening room, dabbing and watching the whole O.J. documentary in one sitting. Short of going to war or teaming up with someone for a massive casino heist, I think watching the whole O.J. doc at once with some concentrated THC might be the best way to forge a new friendship. So in the early days of the pandemic, we stayed in constant contact. We're both news junkies, and we were taking the deadly virus deadly seriously. It's kind of embarrassing to say now, but when this started, he and I started hoarding weed. We were convinced the dispensaries would close. We should have known that shit would have been considered essential. But as the reality of the pandemic set in and I began to fall apart, Jack was making a plan. At his rented house in Beechwood Canyon, he was installing an above-ground pool. If you're skeptical, then you know how I felt. If you're thinking I must be the best white trash bloodhound in history because I was able to sniff out the only above-ground pool in the Hollywood Hills, well... You're goddamn right I am. So when I got back from Cedars that day and told Jack what had gone down, he had a prescription of his own. Dude, come over here, smoke a joint, and float around this pool for an hour. At this point, I was willing to try anything, and it's not like he was asking me to take up jogging. So I rolled a fatty and drove up Gower before hanging a left and driving up Vine with that big Hollywood sign starting small and getting bigger. And there, in my dude's driveway, was an above-ground pool or spa a big bulging rectangle with a solar heating cover, a filter system, and about three and a half feet of water. If you're picturing something glamorous, then I have failed to describe it accurately. But glamour wasn't the goal. This was about functionality, and I sure as hell wasn't second-guessing it as I put my phone down, grabbed a floating recliner, got in the water, laid back, and lit up. After an hour of floating, and you know, floating, while looking up at two twin palm trees swaying in the California breeze together, I was a whole new person. That wasted, mindless hour relaxed me more than just about any vacation I've ever had, and I realized pretty quickly that my buddy had saved both summer and what was left of my sanity. So I bought a charcoal grill, and I donated it to the concrete Xanadu, and I started going over there several times a week, working at home from early morning to mid-afternoon, and then heading for Palm Sway. Yeah, I named it Palm Sway. I'd head over there when the Eastern time zone started to wind down for the day. Like Fox News viewers, we created our own reality. It was a safe summer bubble of our own, a way to have fun while everything went to shit around us. We were two Peter Pan bachelors with lots of privilege and no real problems other than a deadly virus that changed everything around us and cut us off from our families. I made a friend that summer the way you make a friend in elementary school. It was so much fun. We floated and toked and grew our hair down to our shoulders and talked politics and NBA 2K for PlayStation and movies and 
I have to remember later that I want to get y'all's take on one of the movie debates we had. It's been driving me crazy. But when everything was scary, we still found ways to laugh, even as we talked daily about the mounting death toll or the economic devastation or just the stunning absence of American leadership. Some days we tried to forget that the country around us was hurting. Some days that worked. Then the cops killed George Floyd. The soundtrack of our summer changed instantly as low-flying LAPD helicopters tried to drown out our childish Gambino. And like angry teenagers, we raised middle fingers to the sky. The air changed. Our conversations changed. We talked more about things that mattered more. We talked about where we'd stood tall, and we talked about where we'd fallen short. We listened, and we learned. And while we saw the streets were packed with protesters for days on end, only Jack was brave enough to venture out to join them. As I said, I was terrified of COVID. I spent those first few days donating money to good causes and trying to convince myself that that, combined with my day job, meant that I was doing enough or doing something. And then I saw that flag. It was a Sunday. It was a pool day. I was planning to grill some burgers and relax. It was eating away at me not to be marching. But it just seemed like common sense to not risk my health. Some friends of Jack's asked if they could use his driveway for parking so they could join the protest. I kind of knew them too, so when they arrived, I put on my mask and I went out to say hello and you know, also get something out of my car. And when I did, I walked to the edge of the driveway, watching the stream of people walking down the hill toward the protest and carrying my gaze from left to right and to that flag. Since the first time I went up to Jack's place, I was completely blown away by the view he had of the Capitol Records building. The whole vista from the end of the street is breathtaking, but it looks right down on Capitol Records, a building I once read that Beck described as the mothership, the building where one of Sinatra's microphones reportedly is still standing. It's the house that Nat King Cole built. And on top of that cylindrical building, close to its red light flashing H-O-L-L-Y-W-O-O-D, the Black Lives Matter flag was flying in the wind above Hollywood. It got my attention the first time I saw it and every time after. But on that Sunday afternoon, it broke through to me in a way that it hadn't before. So I asked myself a very simple question. Let's say you go down there, and let's say you get COVID, and let's say you die. Is this worth dying for? And I decided the answer was yes. That flag moved me to mask up and get my privileged, lily-white ass down that hill to join my fellow human beings in demanding justice and equality and fairness and dignity. And I'm so glad I did. To be there in that moment, to see Americans of every background imaginable taking to Hollywood Boulevard to form a sea of electric righteousness with a pink mohawk and a million raised black fist. Well, like I said, some things are worth dying for. Plus, I found out later that Mitt Romney marched in Washington that day, and I simply never would have been able to forgive myself if the human equivalent of the ghost of chalk covered in mayonnaise and milk, and well, you know, he's the whitest motherfucker in history, and if I found out that he was out there marching while I was floating in a fucking pool and sending money, well, thanks, Capitol Records. Of course, the summer ended. People moved on. Republicans got more and more comfortable calling those marchers terrorists, even after actual terrorists attacked the Capitol. But time kept moving, as it does. The virus kept killing people. And the folks who posed for pictures taking a knee stood up and went back to ignoring the problem. For me, work got busy. As the campaign season heated up. We got haircuts. Jack got a girlfriend. And the earth stopped moving the sun directly over Palm Sway in the morning, leaving the water dark and cold in the afternoon. Seasons change. 
and nothing can stay golden forever. It was a bleak winter that followed, one of death and violence and fear and hate. But winter's over now. The spring is here, and there's real hope in the air. And even if it's not real, I mean, swimming pool season is just around the corner. Ruby, are you a swimmer? Yeah, yeah, I enjoy a good jacuzzi. I am an L.A. Jew after all. Um, (laughs) But I think what really struck me about your pool moment and just even hearing about it the last couple of months um, is that you like found your niche of that kept you sane during the fucking pandemic because everyone had one and they like mine was just simply like walking to my daily coffee shop being the only person inside. That's a good one. I mean, I wasn't going to learn how to make fucking bread. I mean, there's just some things, you know, there's some things that are just not me. No. So yeah, I had to find a way to cope and it was guaranteed to be weird. And it was, I was guaranteed to get through, through the hardest, worst way possible. And you know, it's weird (laughs) because Zoloft really helped me. Um, Is that right? Yeah. Um, but I remember when you were going through that and you were not, well, you were not fun to talk to during no, that. Yeah. I, you know, I was kind of a mess. I just, I was having trouble catching my breath is what it felt like. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. It was just a terrible feeling. It's like you, you sought something that would help you and it made you feel 10 times worse. Um, yeah. I mean, <laughs> you know, I mean, I guess it's an imprecise science and they do their best and that was a very unusual case. And this year has been amazing. And it's been about finding the little things that get you out of bed. Um, because for a while, it was just so fucking bleak for yeah. a while. Well, you know, at first it was like, well, it's only the last two weeks. And everybody's like, man, two fucking weeks. I Are know. you kidding me? Can we do two weeks? And then, you know, then it becomes, well, actually, it's probably going to last for the rest of your fucking life. Yeah. And- I, I don't <laughs> think masks are going away anytime fucking soon. Yeah. I always looked forward to our phone calls during that time, too. That was like part of the way I got through it. Um, so I just want to consistently thank you for being my friend. Oh, and that makes me feel so good. I know. But, it you know, pandemic friendships, just like you and Jack, are so important and so unique. And I hope um, people write about them because what the fuck happened this year? Jesus Christ. Well, I mean, we found value in community again, right? Yeah. I mean, we we leaned on each other. And we were reminded that, you know, we're not alone. We're not just, you know, 300 and whatever million assholes, you know, selfishly walking through this thing alone. Yeah. Our next guest is making me break a personal promise. Because when we got this podcast, I said, there's no way in hell I'll ever have a fucking Trump on my show. But this is a good Trump. Our guest today is the best-selling author of Too Much and Never Enough, How My Family Created the World's Most Dangerous Man. She's also the reason the New York Times was able to tell us that Donald Trump was full of shit when he told us he was a self-made man. Mary Trump, welcome to Burning Bridges. It's so great to be here. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Uh, I think the question everybody wants to know the answer to is, what is Meghan McCain like? No, I'm just kidding. Can you imagine? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. If that's the burning, I think we should just end it all now. (laughs) (laughs) No, if I could be serious for a second, actually, my question was, this isn't going to air for a couple weeks, but we just watched the Oprah interview with Meghan, Markle, and Harry. My question is, how are you? It's tough coming out and exposing yourself the way you have over the last year or so. How are you doing? You know, I honestly, the the, the uh, stuff with my family is the least of it. I've been, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Estranged mm. for a long time, uh, with the exception of my aunt. And obviously I'm estranged from her now. <laughs> mm. So I've been outside of this family for most of my life. So I think uh, it's a less immediate experience. 
But, you know, it's never an easy thing to do to speak truth to power in any context. Well, I would think just with the people, we know what your uncle's supporters are like. We know what happens when you go against the cult. I, I just, I have to believe this last year for you hasn't been easy. Honestly, I think it's been hard because of COVID. Sure. You know, it's really difficult to know how things might have played out otherwise if I had been in the world. Um, but, you know, at the very beginning, there was no way to know how things were going to happen. So I took the necessary precautions. And then it seemed like in a really weird way that being his niece, regardless of how much of a traitor his uh, followers would would think me to be, uh, kind of protected me. Because even they like won't cross that line. You know, I may be evil, but I'm family. Oh, wow. I guess is ugh, right. Right. Because literally until recently, there was nothing. The insults I got on Twitter, which are a tiny percentage of comments I get on Twitter, were when are your 15 minutes going to be up? Uh, you're such a grifter or and this is my favorite how could you be so disloyal to your family? That's right. <laughs> totally my favorite. Because that question is never turned around, interestingly right. enough. How yeah. could they be so disloyal to you? Yeah. Um, but, you know, until about a month ago, it was kind of smooth sailing. And then there was a little blip and I took the necessary precautions again and things have gotten quiet again. So I think besides the family stuff, I think even COVID may have made it a little easier to stay out of um, the crosshairs, so to speak. Sure. I mean, it's an enormously successful book, but not only that, I mean, as I mentioned in the introduction, I mean, you were behind the bombshell New York Times report that basically showed us the little guy behind the curtain. Yeah. Uh, I'm really proud of my involvement with that because it was the first time I, I took that leap. And it's all credit to Suzanne Craig, the brilliant investigative reporter who spent about three months after she initially knocked on my door, trying to convince me that I had stuff that could actually matter. And she and Russ Butner, another extraordinary investigative reporter, just did such a phenomenal job. It took what almost two years for them to do that. And they took these, you know, 19 boxes of legal and financial documents, which meant nothing to me. And they dug down and, as you said, pulled that curtain back and we got to see, well, we, you know, a lot of us knew, but everybody else got to see just what an imposter Donald is, uh, among many other things. But, you know, specifically just the, the myth of his success, the myth of his being self-made, the myth of his being a brilliant businessman, all uncovered. And it turns out he's uh, just a little trust fund baby. <laughs> Did you know that you had those documents? I mean, I have boxes sitting in my house that I, you know, haven't gone through for several years. And reading that story, I was like, maybe I should look through them and take down members <laughs> of my family. I was like, I also like am estranged from a few members and uh, maybe I just am not cleaning up enough. Like, There's a reason we call the show Burning Bridges. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm all for that. <laughs> you know, um, yeah, it's true. You, you never know what you have, which is why I encourage people to hang on to things. Yeah. <laughs> because you could help take somebody down who really needs some taken down. I am hoping I'm just as Boarding lucky for as America. you. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man, I'm happy to happy to help. <laughs> Um, I didn't. I totally forgot about them. I they they were part of a lawsuit that I'd been involved in um, after my grandfather died. I found out that I'd been completely disinherited, which didn't seem fair. 
because I think my family had a fair amount of money to share. So I've heard. Got completely, yeah. yeah. Um, less than Donald thinks he has, probably. But anyway, <laughs> lots of money. And uh, there was no negotiating with them. So finally, I sued the my grandfather's estate. And those documents were part of discovery. It's called the 3-2 rule. You get three years before and three years after the date of my grandfather's will, because that's what I was contesting. And, you know, to me, it meant nothing. It was tax returns from every single property he had. It was his bank records and his canceled checks. You know, it was just and then also uh, there were the depositions from the lawsuit and and some other things. So I did very badly in the lawsuit. It did not go well for me at all. So I just wanted to forget about it. And no idea. I had no idea that stuff still existed. Turns out that uh, the lawyer who represented me for that lawsuit still had them in a storage facility somewhere. And it took a few weeks, but eventually I got him to bring them to his office. And it was actually 30 boxes. It turns out everything was in duplicate. So um, I was on crutches at the time. Wow. And uh, it, it was it was quite an adventure. I have to say it was really fun. Initially, he wouldn't give me permission to take the documents for complicated reasons. So I smuggled them out. I love that. A little bit. Yeah, at like a time. the Pentagon like Papers. Two, yeah, two <laughs> backpacks at a time with my crutches. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, it was fun. It's a, it's a, it's a modern day uh, deep throat story, right? I mean, it's, uh, yeah. I, I was a reporter for like 15, 20 years. And my favorite thing in the world was somebody was like, hey, we got a box of documents. Like, oh. Right. So let me ask, you pulled the curtain back and then 74 million Americans continue to believe in the great and powerful Oz. Why? <laughs> uh, yeah, that's, um, I'm not over that yet. Sure. No, I don't think we can be. Absolutely not. No, it's devastating. It's, uh, you know, that's that, that number is what kept me from being able to be happy yeah. about the election. I mean, I'm relieved, of course, that, that Biden and Harris won, but I'm not happy because that's a lot of people. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. it should have been 20 million. Because look, there's always 22% of any population is going to be, you know, your hardcore white supremacist. They're always going to vote for people like Donald, no matter what. And uh, I always thought liberal democracy's job in part is to contain those people. But I think what happened uh, is that between 2016 and 2018, 100% of the federal government represented the absolute worst among us. Mm. And it's like that disease metastasized. So, you know, we probably have three or four different groups and I don't think it's hopeless. I think part of that uh, is just people who are knee jerk Republicans, low information voters. They just vote for the R. Sure. No matter what, they don't really know what's going on. And then we've got about 30 percent of any population is uh, has authoritarian personalities. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're Republicans, but it's a very much an us versus them mentality, which Donald is quite expert at, you know, pouncing on and he loves division and he loves creating division and exacerbating division. So when you scare people enough and make them think that, you know, us versus them isn't like us against COVID, but us against brown and black people or us against wimpy Dems who wear masks and want to take your all of your freedoms away. <laughs> then uh, they're going to go towards that side that promises them uniformity of thought. And because liberal democracy is messy and complicated and some people don't 
like diversity of opinion or anything else. So there is hope. But (laughs) before the election, I was naive enough to think that there would be a blowout. I mean, I wasn't counting on it, but I really thought that that was an option because my my thinking behind that was the only way we can recover from this quickly and move on is if Joe Biden wins in an absolute landslide. And he did not. Yeah. No, I mean, I went from worrying we would lose to being furious that it wasn't the rejection we needed it to be. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Although 81 million votes has a has a nice ring to it. It does. But it was a 40,000 electoral college margin. Sure. Oh, it's terrifying. Yeah. You yeah. know, I, I think when I talk to Democrats now, I find that they're falling into one of two categories as it pertains to your uncle. And one school is... God, can we please just not talk about him anymore? Just stop using his name. Yeah. We beat him. Let's move on. And the other side, which I'll just tell you I fall more into, is we can't afford to ignore him. You know, I, I look at it like I had a rattlesnake in my house for four years. I got him to the front yard. He still wants back in. Now, I can't pretend like that rattlesnake isn't out there. Yeah. I mean, do you think, is that, is, is, do we ever get to a point where we can just forget that Donald Trump exists? Well, I don't think we should for a couple of reasons. One, is because we need to remember that in 2016, this country permanently debased itself. And we need to face that shame and make sure it never happens again. I'm so glad to hear you say that. Yeah. Yeah. No, I I think more people should recognize that. Yeah. You know, this is not, um, oh, well, you know, that was just a blip and everything's fine now. No. We never hold people accountable. Right. We're always, well, not we, are the the people in charge are always like, well, let's turn the page. We can't afford to look back. We need to look bullshit. We need to we need to reckon with this because our democracy is still hanging by a thread, which is why you're absolutely right. Let's put it this way. Even if Biden, if the margins were what they are, right? It, it was a decisive win. There's no question about that. Um, but I think the whole Republican Party needed to be repudiated. Yeah. They were. However, the Republican Party has had several off ramps since the election. They could immediately have acknowledged Biden's win and ignored Donald and his big lie. Failing that, they could have held him accountable for the insurrection he incited. You know, so they keep refusing to do it. They're the reason he's still relevant. They're the reason. You know, if he had lost and then been ignored like every other former person in the White House, then I think it might not have been so clear and it might have been better to ignore him, mostly because that would upset him greatly. And (laughs) that's always a bonus. But we can't ignore him because he's still the de facto head of the Republican Party because they keep allowing him to be. Yeah, I I hear people say Donald Trump is the Republican Party, and I understand what they're saying. But to me... Lindsey Graham is the Republican Party. Matt Gates is the Republican Party because the Republican Party isn't 74 million Donald Trumps. It's 74 million people who are so morally weak and unprincipled that they would sell out their own mothers after they sold out their own country just to chase a little bit of power, no matter who's carrying it. Yeah. And I just, the more I've watched these last few weeks and few things have disgusted me this year as much as the Republican effort to act like there wasn't a terrorist attack on our capital. Just sweep it under the rug. Just pretend like that shit didn't happen. Well, because it's 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 infuriating. It is. I, I've spent four years now, five years now. I, you know, I was a political reporter. I was a White House correspondent. I covered two presidents. And I feel like Rip Van Winkle waking up and there's just a bunch of deranged 
idiots escape from an insane asylum humping the Statue of Liberty. Like, nothing makes sense to me. And I, you know, I, I feel like it's been five years trying to put it together. Maybe in another five years, I'll figure it out. I was listening to a podcast today, uh, one that you were on. You are a, a seasoned podcast guest. Um, and someone was saying uh, Trumpism isn't a winning strategy. And I texted Sam. I was like, they can't even say that. Don't even, like, you can't even, don't even give them that. Like, we're undermining every, I just feel, you know, so scared that something like this will happen again. I do not feel confident in our democracy and neither do, I guess, Trump supporters in our in our free and fair election. But what happens to someone like Trump when you keep empowering him in the sense that like maybe he lost the election when he was impeached, he wasn't removed from office. There is nothing that came about from the insurrection. What what does that is he going to run again? I mean, it is it is terrifying because um, all actions that he has done in the last four years are just completely emboldened by his party even now. And yes, he might be the face of it, but he's not the Republican Party. Everyone around him is. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot to, to go through there. But first of all, no, he is the direct result of 40 year plus years of Republicans convincing people to vote against their self-interest, Republicans using social issues as political wedge issues, you know, something like gun safety and women's rights or climate change for Christ's sakes or marriage equality. These should not be political issues, but that's all they've got. So Dr. Seuss. They are so. him. He, yeah. Dr. Seuss, the <laughs> Ms. Mr. The potato head bullshit. Like it's all they've yeah. got. So yeah, the, the, the question uh, you're referring to was why do they stick with him? Because Trumpism doesn't scale. You know, he lost the house. He lost the Senate. He lost the, they don't care. They are anti-democratic counter-majoritarian party who knows that the demographics are against them. So what are we seeing? We are seeing an avalanche of voter suppression laws, not just being um, introduced, but being passed. And, you know, if these were in place six months ago, we wouldn't have taken both Senate seats. They, we wouldn't. Yeah. Have. Um, so they don't give a shit if it scales because they don't believe in democracy. No. And it's all they've got. It's like you said, it. it's all they've got. They don't have the policies. The people aren't with them on policy. So they got to come up with this other shit to keep, you know, keep them angry. Keep them angry and keep them voting against their self-interests. And, you know, the answer to the other question is what happens when you don't hold somebody like Donald accountable? I think we've seen that. He gets worse. He doubles down. Mm -hmm. He quadruples down. He didn't get convicted for that treasonous phone call with Volodymyr Zelensky. So he kept trying to steal the election. Why not? And he came very, very close. Yes. He should have lost. I mean, it's the same thing with 2016. Hillary Clinton should have won by... It, it, well, if she'd been a white guy, she probably would have won by 12 million votes. Uh, Joe Biden's margin should have been 20 million. So it's not for lack of trying. Right. Uh, so now they're just going to keep trying at the, the state level, which is exactly why Democrats need to stop fucking around. Yes. And pretending that this is a normal, equal political party. The Republican Party Mainstream Republicanism right now is white supremacy. The Republican Party mm. is, an again, an anti-de-democratic, proto-authoritarian party that would embrace fascism if they felt that that was going to be helpful to keeping them in power. So the Democrats have to stop 
pretending that that's not the case. Get rid of the fucking filibuster and let people understand once again, not just that the government works for them, but the government is them. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It's it's terrifying. We were talking about it just before we got on here. On the day we're recording this, the House has just finished passing $1.9 trillion COVID relief. Real meaningful change. You know, one of the most aggressive anti-poverty efforts in a generation. Merrick Garland has just been confirmed to be attorney general. And all I can think about are these goddamn storm clouds on the horizon in the form of voter suppression. Because of this, also this week, Georgia and Iowa passed some of the craziest anti-voter shit I've ever seen in my life. Now, explain to me how in Iowa cutting voting hours by one hour makes things more secure. <laughs> so I guess my question is this. Some Democrats believe accountability is still coming for Donald Trump. And some Democrats believe he got away with it again. He got away with everything. Well, he has gotten away with it. Yeah. The question then is, will that ever stop? It depends on a few things. Uh, and first of all, in terms of the these, some of, some of the voter suppression laws are horrifying, as you pointed out. And some of them, they're just flexing, you know? They're just yeah. sending that message. <laughs> we can do whatever the fuck we want to do because we don't care. We don't care yeah. about these voters. We don't care about government. We just want to stay in power and keep, I don't know. I, honestly, like I'm at the point where like, why? <laughs> like, what are they getting out of it? But I guess it's money. So I think if Donald is held accountable, it's going to be uh, through civil cases and state level charges. I think Joe Biden made a huge mistake by sending the message that he wasn't interested. I guess it was about he doesn't want his presidency to be about Donald. Well, you know what? How many times have we seen this? Barack Obama decided that being a war criminal was okay. decided that bankers who who practically destroyed the global economy should get a pass, even though they destroyed the lives of millions of mostly black people. So. I'm not entirely sure why treason is okay, but that's kind of where we are. And I think that my hope is that Merrick Garland will have access to evidence that is way too awful to look away from. Yeah. And maybe we we will see. I mean, there needs to be a COVID commission because they're mass murderers. I mean, we got that's the other thing. We got to stop fucking around with language. You know, it took the mainstream media what three years to call him yeah. a liar, four years to call him a racist. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. we're yeah. looking at orchestrated mass murder because one guy thought it was a good political strategy to hang on to power. There needs to be a January 6th commission as well. Now, will charges follow from that? Who knows? Probably not. So let's get him. You know, I there are three lawsuits going on, all of which are being masterfully run by my lawyer, Robbie Kaplan. Uh, You know, I have a fraud case against my family. It's like a multi-level marketing lawsuit, I think, that Donald is allegedly involved in. And then I think uh, the most important of them is E. Jean Carroll's defamation case. Yes, yes. Um, You know, she alleges that Donald raped her in the 90s. Statutes of limitations have passed. But he said she was lying about it because apparently she didn't think she was attractive enough for him to rape. So she's claiming he defamed her because if she were telling the truth, then that means what she's alleging is actually true. So she's going to depose him and get his DNA. The reason I think that's that's more important is because I'm accusing him of fraud. Like, no kidding. (laughs) No kidding. (laughs) I mean, hopefully my contribution will be relieving him of huge sums of money, which then I could 
used for better purposes. Sure. We wish you Godspeed in that effort. Yeah. Eugene is, uh, that's different because then people will be forced to look very differently at the in excess of 23 other charges of sexual harassment and sexual assault. Um, and I think partially because the government failed so egregiously to hold him accountable. I think that increases the urgency for people like Letitia James and Cy Vance to do their jobs as thoroughly as possible. No deals, no compromises. It's been going on for decades. Let's get this done. I just think of the Obama phrase, Michelle Obama phrase, uh, when they go low, we go high. And I remember being so struck by that and, and, and thinking about that for weeks after. We got to, you know, we got to fight fire with fire right now. It's it's not about it's not about moving on. It's, you know, got to hold something accountable and change language in media. Um, Pandemicide is something I saw you tweet the other. I was I was like, that's exactly what it is. And that is a phrase that we should be using on a daily basis because that is what's going on. Yeah, that's that was from the the an article written by the the great Lori Garrett, yeah. who uh, coined uh, the phrase pandemicide. Um, I think she's a little more generous than I would be because I'm sticking with mass murder, but pandemicide, you know, is, was a, I guess his way to commit mass murder, yeah. <laughs> I suppose. And I, I never interpreted the way other people did. I, I, I didn't think it meant, you know, the Democrats are going to continue playing by the Marquess of Queensbury rules. Right. <laughs> what I thought that meant was fight, but fight righteously. Right. You know, don't stoop to their level. Don't lie, cheat and steal. But fight. And if that means taking off the gloves and take off the fucking gloves, because if you're if you're on the side of good and, you know, you know that if you lose, we're going to lose everything, then you fight as hard as you can. That's all. It doesn't mean be polite. It just means, you know, don't stoop. And I, I mean, personally, it's it's I, it's sort of like um, if somebody is attacking you and you're a threat for your life, then you can, you can do whatever you want to, yeah. to protect yourself. That's sort of where I think Democrats are, which is, again, why they need to stop pretending that their opponents are playing by the same rules. The, their opponents are playing by any rules because their <laughs> opponents burn the rule book and the bridges. <laughs> Everything's on fire. To bipartisanship, which doesn't exist anymore. So stop pretending it does. I do worry that Democrats internalize that message, though, sometimes that you almost get the sense that a lot of people in democratic politics believe that politics is beneath them. You know, you, you talk about Joe Biden making a mistake by wanting to move on after January 6th. And I completely agree with you. I feel like he's been on a roll, but there have been a couple of fuck ups that I just can't ignore. January 6th is one. Jamal Khashoggi is another. Yeah. And now we've got a $1.9 trillion in COVID relief going out the door and he doesn't want to put his name on it. Now I understand not wanting to be Donald Trump. I completely get that. Yeah. Believe me, I get that more than anything. Yeah. But we got to tell people where this is coming from. We can't be afraid to play politics because that's the that's the business we signed up for. Yeah, it, that's a really good point. It's like the Republicans don't understand that part of politics is government and yeah. the yeah. Democrats don't understand that a part of politics is politics. Well, wow, that's really well uh, put. You know, yes. Colloquially speaking. So um, I completely agree with you as far as the Khashoggi thing. When things like that happen, I, I sometimes wonder, is there something going on behind the scenes that we just don't know? Because that was that just seems insane to me. I assume that, to be honest with right? you. Right. Yeah. I mean, sometimes I make that assumption because it's 
who knows? Like, who knows who's threatened or who knows who's vulnerable? I don't know. I mean, I think it was a terrible decision. I'd like to think that there was a rationale that would make sense to us if we were privy to it. Still a bad decision. But the check thing. Yeah, uh, you're right. Because of Donald and his enablers, we are now living in a completely different political la- landscape uh, from the one we were living in four or five years ago. And it's not going to change overnight. So we need to ease our way back in. And that means taking victory laps and shouting from the rooftops who's responsible for this, because it isn't just that we passed this thing. It's that we passed it without one Republican, even though 75 percent of people in this country wanted it done. They don't give a shit about you guys. That message needs to be clear. Um, I and so don't under it just I don't understand that, except that it's just total unification of the party. I'm constantly texting Sam. Why? When it's such a popular policy. Yeah, maybe I'm I'm not as jaded as I think I am. Uh, no, I don't think it's about being jaded. I think it's it's about being somebody with basic human decency, <laughs> you know, um, but it's because they get away with it. Yeah, they get away with it. And they. They are authoritarians, every single one of them. Uh, So they don't ever want to let down their guard and make people think that Democrats are anything other than the enemy, even if you American citizens were struggling so horribly because of a crisis we, the Republicans, made worse. You know, too bad. We're not going to help you because having Democrats be our enemy is much more important. It's like you said, that's all they got. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you, I, uh, I know you're a Faulkner scholar, and I used to fancy myself as one back in the day. Uh, I've even drunkenly fallen off of uh, Mr. Faulkner's grave. <laughs> <laughs> wow, I can't top that. Yeah, well, you know, they keep a, English students will sometimes leave a fifth of bourbon there. And back when I was in, in my wilder days, I ran out of booze, <laughs> and I knew where to find a bottle. And uh, yeah, next thing I know, I'm laying on my back. Uh, well, but, that is the only way to fall off of yeah, grave is to be drunk off your ass. It's an it's a true story. I, uh, I, I it hurt like hell, but I did not I did not spill a drop. <laughs> but I want to ask all that you. Matters, <laughs> I uh, I've had this quote I've been telling people for years. It's from The Sound of Fury. It's Quentin Compson, the second chapter, I believe, and he's talking about his roommate, and he says, I, "I've been convinced from that day that God is not only a gentleman but a Kentuckian as well." And I, I wanted to confirm. <laughs> I wanted to confirm that I was getting that right. Uh, yeah, that would be Shreve. Um, I cannot disagree. I love with it. that. I'm, I'm taking it to based the based on then. the two Kentuckian men I know. Oh, do you want to tell us who they are? I'm also a Kentuckian, and I talk about it a lot. Well, it's you and Rex, and I honestly oh. <laughs> don't really know either one of you. But so far, so good. Well, I mean, if you know Rex, then you, then you're keeping good company. I love Rex. I just know him through Twitter. Sure, but sure. I, uh, I, he's awesome. I mean, that's like one of the few like really cool things that's come out in the last few years is we've all like made these like networks of people from all right? different walks of life who like you know the only thing they have in common is they want to save democracy or they hate racism. You know, good shit like that. And I, I really thought when Trump came in, I was like, okay, the one good thing that's going to come out of this is we're going to get a shitload of good rock and roll. Because like that's what happened with Nixon, you know, we got all kinds of cool stuff, and that didn't happen. You know, we got like Childish Gambino, and that was like it. Yeah, what's up with that? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> My generation's lazy, lazy. <laughs> Are you an ex? 
I mean, sorry, Z. I'm a, I'm, X. I'm a, uh, I guess I'm a millennial. Yeah. I, I try to stay away from all labels. So I'm just. <laughs> oh, I thought you were Z. I. I'm also X. So everything after me looks like millennials. That's, I, <laughs> That's millennials, true. my shorthand for people who are younger than me. Um, yeah, it's, it, that is disappointing, but actually I wonder if, um, I think COVID is actually responsible for a lot of these weird, unexpected opportunities to, to meet people. You know, for example, if I had been doing interviews in studios, I would have been, you know, it's usually it's just people who live within a 30 mile radius of the studio, go and get interviewed. So just like you just get, we've gotten, um, exposed to a whole diversity of people that I don't think we would have been otherwise. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong, but it is the, it is the only good thing that's come out of yes. this last year. Yeah. He brought us together in hatred of him. And there's sort of two <laughs> pandemics. I know, you know, obviously you're a psychologist. One is, of course, the coronavirus who's, you know, taken upwards of 500,000 lives. But then there's the mental health pandemic that has come out of this that, everyone has experienced. Um, obviously, I have not read the the COVID bill cover to cover. I don't think anyone has. Yeah. Um, what would you have put in? I'm so disappointed. I, I know. I'm a terrible person. Um, what would you, I just think of constantly about the doctors and nurses. Who, you know, I, I have no idea what they have seen during this time. What would you have put in to the COVID bill um, regarding like mental health services and through just money, throwing money at it, basically, because um, we're going to be feeling this for a very long time, the the mental consequences of living inside and all the bullshit that's gone on. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm actually writing a book about Hell that yes. as we speak. Nice. Um, pro tip, don't write a book about trauma while you're in the process of being actively traumatized. Oh, yeah, I'll bet. Yeah. Okay, I'll, I'll hold off <laughs> so on my it's book tricky. for a while. Yeah. Um, no, it's, so it's it's a great question. And I think what you said is throw money at the problem with the right people in charge. Yeah. I think it should be a cabinet level position. Agreed. Honestly, dealing with, we have no idea what's coming our way. Uh, the analogy I used is imagine if we had gone to war, but every single one of us went to war at the same time. Some of us saw active combat every day. Some of us had desk jobs, whatever. We're, so there are varying levels of dealing with the conflict. And then we all came back at the same time. And regardless, we all suffered some sort of trauma. Like I think even with COVID, people who deny it, people who are standing in Idaho with their kids burning masks, like, by the way, that's child abuse. Yeah. But okay. Um, they may not feel it, but- they are. I mean, our communities are being changed. People imagine what happens to people like that if somebody in their family did die and then they realize just how horribly they've been betrayed by their government. Like, how do you process that one? So all of us to some degree. So we're staring down the barrel of a mental health crisis, the likes of which we've never seen. And that even at the best of times, we are not prepared for because we do mental health really badly in this country. You know, there's this weird bifurcation between mental and physical in the West anyway. Um, mental illness is still has a little bit of a stigma attached to it. And mental health is considered a luxury. Yeah. So, you know, the just variety and um, difference in degrees of PTSD, depression, anxiety, substance abuse. Uh, this is a tough one to think about, but 
domestic abuse, child abuse, you know, the stuff that's been happening behind closed doors. Um, as you said, the frontline workers, and I've, I've been thinking about frontline workers a lot uh, recently because it isn't just the horrors they've witnessed and the stress and the hours they've put in and the unspeakable amounts of suffering and death they've had to be witness to. It's the fact that the ostensible leader of the country accused them of stealing PPE when there were PPE shortages that were directly his responsibility. Uh, when they have dying patients spitting at them because they feel like they're being lied to because they can't be dying of COVID because there isn't such a thing as COVID. You know, so it's just this compounding of stressors that it's going to take a really long time to identify, grapple with, unravel. So we need a cabinet level position and a commission of mental health care experts, nurses, physicians, psychiatrists, psychologists, social workers, whatever, and experts in administration so that we come up with the right modalities of treatment and we put the resources where they we need them because we're going to need some stuff happening in schools and we're going to need stuff happening at the local and community levels like we've absolutely never seen before. And we need to keep them in place, just like we need to keep uh, stockpiles of PPE and ventilators because we know this kind of shit's going to happen again. We just don't ever learn our lesson, ever. Well, the one encouraging note is that we actually have a president that understands grief now. We have a president who understands trauma, and we have a president that understands the need to prepare for the next pandemic, which, you know, it's a good start. It's, it's, a, it's a lot better than where we were. I love that you tweeted the other day uh, that you're tired of sociopaths in power. And I instantly thought, do you have to, don't you have to be a sociopath to be in power um, or uh, a complete narcissist to feel like you're competent for the job? Well, sometimes we host podcasts. Yeah, that's okay. There you go. <laughs> um, no, I don't think you have to be a sociopath. I mean, healthy narcissism helps for sure. Yeah. Because think about it. Uh, think about what it would take for you to believe that you deserve or or have the skill set that would enable you to be the leader of the free world. Yeah. Um, you know, and again, healthy narcissism versus malignant narcissism makes a big difference. I mean, there's no, of course, of course, Barack Obama, Obama's a narcissist, but he has empathy. Yeah. You know, you can be a narcissist and still care about other people. But, you know, sociopathy isn't, isn't a requirement unless you're a Republican, in which case it absolutely <laughs> is. There you go. On that note, Mary, we want to thank you so much for coming on the show. Please come back when you've got your new book out. We want to talk about it. Yeah. I Guys, I had a, such a good time. This was a blast. I really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, I will definitely be in touch. Thank you so much. You take care of yourself. Well, folks, that's all the time we've got for today's show. But I want to thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to subscribe. We'll be releasing all new episodes every Tuesday. This has been a Bunker Crew Media production. It's hosted by Sam Youngman and me, Ruby Frankel. Editing and sound design by Joy Ellett. Special thanks to Don Winning for the kick-ass show art. Homecoming for their cover of Man of Constant Sorrow and Ganga Beats. I love you, you sexy patriots. See you next week.